0: So there's something in spiritual life that's not about gaining or changing ourselves. It's called fruition practice or resultant practice. It's owning with gratitude the the fact that we are here and that we're beautiful and that others are and that we get to live this human incarnation. And your job then is to be fully present for your life welcome to the jack cornfield heart wisdom hour we are delighted to share with you jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart if you are interested in supporting jack's podcast go to beherenownetwork.com slash jack so please let yourself be settled and listen for a time in a way that's easy and gracious no need to remember any of it no quiz at the end um, if it touches something that you know to be true in yourself then it's then it's a value and the rest you can let go So it's a beautiful autumn, almost winter night out there. Wasn't it great to have a rainstorm finally? And the land and the deer and the animals and the plants are just so happy as we are to have this moisture that we've needed for so long. And it's also this turning of the seasons in a week we'll be at the winter solstice. Um, So it's the holiday time, it's Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and Actually, in Islam, it's also the holiday that celebrates the birth of the Prophet at this time. Everybody in different parts of the world, this is Northern Hemisphere, you get it in the Southern Hemisphere the other time of the year, but there is something archetypal and deep in us as human beings um, to notice that it gets darker and darker and darker. And then there's a day when it turns and the light starts to come back again, if we're good, right? <laughs> Unfortunate. And fortunate. Um, and my teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, after some years after I was there, there started to be, and, and a couple of other friends who, who started with him in the, in the 1960s, there started to be a group of other Westerners who came to study with him because he was a very wise and... and kind of remarkable teacher, Um, and and so he decided, after about five years, to open a monastery that was um, for Westerners alone, where the language was in English, because a lot of people came who weren't able to understand the Lao and Thai local languages, so they found a village nearby that was interested, and they built this beautiful kind of bamboo monastery in the forest for these people, (laughs) little huts and a place to meet. And then after a couple of years, just around this time of year, in the main hall of that new little forest monastery, some of the monks put up a Christmas tree. This disturbed the villagers who went to complain to Ajahn Chah after a bit. And they said, here we cut the bamboo and built these buildings and we feed them, we give them food in their alms bowl every morning, we care for them, and we thought they were becoming Buddhists, and now they put a Christmas tree in, in, in the meditation hall, and um, what's going on here? So Ajahn Chah said, mm, we, should, we should do something about this. So he called the monks over and the villagers and had, the, had a kind of meeting the way um, one might. And he, he listened to the villagers again. They recited their concerns. And then he asked the monks and nuns from the West who were there, he said, I want to understand what this holiday means. Um, and they talked about it a little bit. And he listened and he said, oh, it's a holiday of generosity where people are giving to one another. It's a holiday of care and compassion. Mm. It's a holiday of renewal. Mm. it's a holiday of moving from selfishness to selflessness. He listened. He, he said, all right. He said to the villagers, you're right. They shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. How about if we call it Chris Budimus? <laughs> and they have been celebrating it ever since there in that particular monastery. It is... Um, It's a wonderful thing to be able to come and sit and meditate as we have in this dark evening with the stars that are here and the air so clear after the rain and part of the ability to come and sit and meditate um, is not just to have some particular meditative experience, but to let us quiet the mind, open the heart and sense the vast silence, the turning of the seasons and the turning of the world um, that we're woven into, that we're a part of. And that sometimes we forget only on occasion when we're busy doing our errands and checking the list and getting our shopping done and all those. It somehow gives us a space to remember something bigger that um, is both mysterious and wonderful. Um, and it's that which reconnects us both with the mystery of the world and and with one another. And I have a real appreciation for you who have come tonight and over these 30 plus years of this class at Spirit Rock, um, for the sincerity of people who come. Um, and I hear over and over again how the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of mindfulness, the teachings of compassion and loving kindness of forgiveness of um inner transformation change people's lives people come up to me or they write letters and a woman wrote and said she was moving her parents from their home um uh where they'd lived for 60 some years her parents were now 91 and 92 and they needed to be moved into assisted living and it was really hard for the parents and hard for her, and not only that, you know how these things go, she was in conflict with her siblings, some who wanted to move, some who didn't, the stuff, what do we do with that, what, you know, how all that fam. that's why they call it nuclear family, by the way, but that's just a little... <clears throat> but anyway, she said, I went out after a day of struggling with them and all the stuff and my siblings, and I just sat on a hillside, quiet, and I did my meditation practice. And I could feel the inner agitation from others and the fear of my parents of something new, all of that. And I just stayed with it with mindfulness and compassion for everybody. Everybody was struggling. Everybody was afraid something new was about to happen. She said, and as I got quieter and more peaceful, I realized I could go back into that situation and I could be the one that carried that place of understanding and peace that everybody really needed. And she said, thank you you know, to the Dharma, thank you for these practices and teachings. Or I get notes from people who are in the middle of a health crisis, or their partner, or someone in their family is, and they say, nothing has helped me more than knowing how to steady myself, otherwise I would be lost in, you know, the fears of what about this cancer, or what about this progressing, and I would lose my life because I'm not here, and I realize that the only place that actually can be alive is here and now, and these are the practices that let me do this. <clears throat> when I traveled in Burma last year, with uh, together with my partner Trudy and with uh, this foundation, the Foundation for People of Burma, that I was par- that I'm a part of, we met with Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner, who's now become elected, or a party has in Burma, as the new uh, government, and she had been under house arrest and in prison. Um, over the course of 17 years and she said if I didn't have meditation practice I don't know what I would have done but because I had it she said they never really had me in prison because I wouldn't hate them and because I wouldn't hate them I didn't feel like I was under their power at all And she came out with such graciousness and clarity and and uh, generosity of spirit after all. Imagine 17 years where she wasn't allowed to be with her children when they graduated college, she wasn't allowed to be with her husband when he died, and still she kept that steadiness, and she said, it was this training in mindfulness and compassion and loving kindness that got me through it all. So I both appreciate the sincerity of everyone who we join in practicing together and the fruits of it in our lives. And of course the mystery of this practice, and really of a spiritual path, is that it's not so much focused on self-improvement, although you can learn to find an inner equanimity or balance, you can deepen a sense of steadiness and resilience and so forth, but it's not really about perfecting yourself. You've already tried that, as we talk about in previous weeks. Therapy, going to the gym, doing a diet, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, it only half worked, as you can see. Um, It's not about perfecting yourself. Um, It's much more about perfecting your love. And perfecting a love for this human life that you have been given, this, this remarkable life. Um, and how you enter it and how you um, move through it. And um, I was given recently, I thought I had it with me but I can't find it, a book of some of the uh, sayings or teachings from Mother Teresa. Um, And in one part of it she talks about how um, the most important thing that she and the Sisters of the missions, Missionaries of Charity can do to give to a person Um, is to respect their dignity. She said, whether you're a homeless person on the street who's dying and we help, or whether you're an orphan, or whether you're somebody who's come from, you know, a very wealthy country and wants to serve and help. She said, it doesn't matter who this being is who comes. We're all hungry for respect and we're all hungry to have, to be treated with a, a kind of respect and dignity that is, um, the birthright of every being who is born here. And so, again, meditation isn't so much to make something happen, although you can learn beautiful techniques and practices to develop loving-kindness or compassion or to steady your attention and be balanced with mindfulness. But not in order to become a mindful person Um, more than that, um, to treat yourself and all that you touch with the, of respect and dignity and uh, care um, to see the sacredness of life Thomas Merton a Christian mystic calls it seeing the secret beauty of every being you meet behind these eyes um, you know is a, is a secret beauty that was born into every single being and we'll talk more about it this evening and he says if only we could see each other that way there'd be no more need for war or cruelty or greed, the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. But we see the beauty in one another, and when we start to pay attention with mindfulness, we also can see the illusion of separateness, what's called the small sense of self or the body of fear, what interferes with us seeing each other with the eyes of love, and the eyes of understanding. In uh, Alice Walker's writing, she has a moment where she writes, um, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, and it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree my arm would bleed, and I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. And there's some way which we all know this. We've had moments walking in the high mountains or listening to an amazing piece of music or making love or being there at the birth of a child or the mysterious moment of death where the spirit leaves this body or some other. Extraordinary times or maybe ordinary times, crossing the Golden Gate Bridge and watching the sweep of fog come in and Realizing we're in the city of St. Francis You know the beloved city of St. Francis Um, So something in us knows that we're connected to the vastness of the world And to meditate more than anything is an invitation to remember to quiet ourselves to touch back into this truth, or this reality, beyond the busyness, or the fears, or the confusion that we also have, because we're humans. We have the tainted glory of humanity. Now, there's a kind of a... Well, there's a very simple expression that Zen Master Suzuki wrote, she used to describe the paradox of spiritual practice in which he says, said to his students, you're perfect just the way you are. And everyone went, ah, how nice, you know, so much love and dignity and appreciation. But then the rest of the phrase goes, you're perfect just the way you are. And there's still room for improvement, (laughs) you know. And both of those are true. Meditation isn't, and spiritual practice isn't meant to be a grim duty. It's meant to be a rediscovery of the love and the beauty, the secret beauty that's in you. One of my favorite holiday stories. This story took place, <clears throat> and it's part of the National Story Project, in the 1930s in Seattle. <clears throat> and told by this fellow's grandfather, who was the oldest of six brothers and a sister. The family finances uh, were terrible during the Depression. My father's business had collapsed, jobs were non-existent, Um, the country was suffering. We had a tree for Christmas, but this year, no presents. We simply couldn't afford them. And on Christmas Eve, we all went to bed in pretty low spirits. Unbelievably, when we woke up on Christmas morning, there was a mound of presents under the tree. We tried to control ourselves at breakfast, but we rushed through the meal in record time. And then the fun began. My mother went first. We surrounded her in anticipation, and she opened the package and saw she'd been given an old shawl that she'd misplaced several months earlier, now stitched together properly. My father got an old axe with a repaired handle. My sister got her old slippers. One of the boys got a newly washed pair of patch trousers. I got a hat, the same hat I thought I'd left in a restaurant back in November. <laughs> Each old cast-off came as a total surprise. Before long, we were laughing so hard we could barely pull the strings on the next package. But from where had this largesse come? It was my brother Morris. For several months, he had been secreting away old things or broken things he knew we wouldn't miss too much. And then on Christmas Eve, after everyone else had gone to bed, he had quietly wrapped the presents and placed them under the tree. I remember this as the finest Christmas we ever had. So there's something in spiritual life that's not about gaining or changing ourselves. It's called fruition practice or resultant practice. It's owning with gratitude the the fact that we are here, and that we're beautiful, and that others are, and that we get to live this human incarnation. And your job, then, is to be fully present for your life, with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, It's not to get something where you have enough. I mean, if anything, it's time to give some of that stuff away. You know that's true. Um, But it's to understand that actually what you most deeply long for is who you are, is coming back to your own heart, to your own beauty, your own well-being that you were born with, to that secret beauty. Now, that being said, you're perfect just the way you are. There's that other little phrase, and there's still room for improvement. And so the other part of the practice that we do together or that we share in different ways, mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness, forgiveness, and so forth, is watering the seeds of goodness that are there in each of us. And of course, in all the many studies in the last couple of decades of modern neuroscience, it's begun to wildly study mindfulness and compassion and all these kinds of things. Um, the main discovery in neuroplasticity of these last decades is that inner strengths and inner capacities can be developed. They can grow, they can be trained. And so we can train in presence we can train ourselves in steadiness we can train ourselves to respond with clarity we can train ourselves in a kind of balance or equanimity that allows the joys and sorrows of life and meets them with a dignity a dignity for ourselves and that we offer to others and as we begin to develop or tune into, or cultivate, or remember the capacities of mindfulness and presence. There grows out of it what are called the dimensions of your own Buddha nature. They start to flower. Your generosity grows deeper because it's easy for you to give things away and care for others when you feel whole in yourself. Your patience grows because there's only now anyway. I mean, where are we going? your clarity grows, your integrity gets deeper, because as I've said in other evenings, it's really hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work very well and you start to realize, hey, this is not actually the path that I want to be on, you know? (laughs) Your dedication works more fully because you find something that really brings meaning into your life, your compassion. And the sense of trust grows. Not trust that you're not going to grow old and die and that bad things won't happen. You will grow old and you will die, as will the people around you. That's part of the turning of the seasons as much as this moment before winter solstice. Um, But then how will you live, given this limited, mysterious human incarnation? I mean, that's part of what makes it so mysterious is that it's not forever. Pretty wild, isn't it? And then what does that understanding, that wisdom really do to inform us? There grows with wisdom a sense of trust that you are part of something bigger. As the Ojibwe, famous Ojibwe saying goes, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Or the poet Pablo Neruda, who writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. There is in you a a life spirit that was born um, and that exists in this incarnation, in this life, but it's not limited to your body. It's a spirit that's beyond that, that was free for Aung San Suu Kyi, even though they they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. No one can take this from you. And so you begin to tune in as you quiet the mind and open the heart to something that's beyond the small sense of self and the body of fear. And you start maybe by just bringing the mind and body together instead of having the mind be in the past and the future and worries and plans and remembering and so forth. And it makes space to see your life, to see the small sense of self and the fears that we all have, and the ideas and confusion, and also to recognize that there is a space of awareness, of loving awareness, that can acknowledge and bow to what's present, and say, oh yeah, this is fear, and this is confusion, and this is longing, and this is love, and this is joy, and this is mm, conflict, and say this is part of the ride of being a human being, And somehow you are bigger than all of that. You are the loving awareness itself. And you enter the stream of wisdom of that kind of inner freedom. Or to use another language of the Buddhist Four Noble Truths, you want to look at the ills of of the world or of your own life. And you can see that suffering is the result of greed, and hatred, and ignorance. And if we look around the warfare, and the racism, and the um, conflicts, and the environmental destruction are the result of greed, and of hatred, and of ignorance. But those are not the only human possibility. When we recognize that those are the cause of suffering, it also becomes possible for us to turn the heart and mind to these other human dimensions. Instead of hatred, we can learn to manifest and bring into the world love. Instead of ignorance and delusion, we can bring clarity and understanding between humans, between species, between all of life. Instead of greed, we can bring into the world generosity and gratitude for life. And you know this in your own life. You can live that. You can develop it and turn toward it. And if we look, all of the ecological problems and all of the modern dilemmas caused by humanity have their roots in these in the human heart. And therefore, the good news is that they also can be transformed. And it's our time to do it as a species. It's time for you individually, of course, but as I've talked about many, many times, um, no amount of outer development of nanotechnology and computers and internet and biotechnology and space technology and all this amazing stuff is going to stop continuing warfare or environmental destruction or racism or tribalism. The outer developments of humanity that we benefit from and celebrate rightfully now need to be matched by the inner developments of humanity. That's our curriculum as humans. And it's in your good hands and in your hearts. And the beautiful thing, the kind of sincerity that I see in people, um, certainly who come here, is that we know this. We already know this, we recognize this in our heart. And so it's a gift for us in our own lives, and it's a gift that we bring back to the world. In Zen, they say that there are only two things. You sit and sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is, So you take the time to quiet the mind, open the heart, remember your interconnection with life, remember what really matters to you. In the end, what matters? Did I love well? Did I give my gifts to the world? And then you get up from your sitting and you pick up the broom, you know, and you sweep. And as Martin Luther King said, if a man sweeps streets for a living or a woman, They should sweep as Michelangelo painted, as Beethoven composed music, as Shakespeare wrote his plays, with that kind of care and dignity to take that to whatever it is that you do and tend this beautiful world and serve it. To tend the hungry, feed the hungry, to tend those who are cold, those who are in need. As um, Ramdas's teacher, Neem Karoli Babas, said when Ramdas said, How do I get enlightened? And Neem Karoli Baba looked back and he said, Love people and feed them. Ramda said, Yeah, what about enlightenment? And he said, Love people and feed them. So you sit and you sweep the garden. This is Puanani. A Hawaiian teacher. She writes, one of the processes I use to help people talk to each other and build community is an exercise where people tell three, three stories. The first is the story of all your names. The second is the story of your community. And the third story I ask is to tell the story of your gift. One time I did this with a group in our local high school. We went around the circle and got to this young man, Kele. He told the story of his name as well and the stories of his community. But when it came time to tell the story of his gift, he asked, What, miss? What kind of gift you think I get, eh? I stay in this special ed class and I get a hard time reading and I cannot do the math. And why you make me ashamed for, ask me that kind of question what kind of gift you have. If I had gift, you think I'd be in this class? Kaylee just shut down and shut up. And I felt shamed all the time I've ever done that. I've never, never meant to shame anyone. Two weeks later, I'm in the local grocery store and I see him down one of those aisles and I see his back and I'm going down there with my cart and I think, nope, I'm not going there. And I turn around as fast as I can and then he turns around and he sees me and he throws his arms open. And he says, Auntie, I've been thinking about you, you know. Two weeks I've been thinking, what my gift, what my gift. And I say, okay, brother, what your gift. And he says, you know, I've been thinking, I cannot do that math stuff and I cannot read so good. But Auntie, when I go in the ocean, I can call the fish and the he comes every time. And every time I can put food on my family's table, every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean and the shark, he come and he look at me and I look at him and I tell him, uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. i just going to take one, two fish just for my family, all the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, okay, you cool, brother. (laughs) And I tell the shark, uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way and I go mine. (laughs) And I look at this boy, Kale, and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way the schools are run, he's rubbish, he's destroyed, not appreciated. So when I talked to his teacher and the principal of the school, I asked them, what would his life be like if this curriculum were gift-based? If we were able to see the gift in each of our children and taught them around their gifts? What would happen if our community was gift-based? If we really understood what the gift of each member of our community was, and really began to support them in that. And so of course that's for him. But you sit and you sweep the garden and you bring your particular gifts. And it might be to make a garden or raise beautiful children, you know, or fight for justice, or it might be to work in healing or medicine or build a conscious business or be an artist or a dancer. I don't know what your gift is. But when you get up from that quiet mind and open heart, what else really... What else really is your life for? What else really nourishes the heart but to be able to give, somehow to give your gift? I talked about it, maybe it was last month or sometime, I've been away on sabbatical, so I'm not teaching here so recently, but my friend Maladoma Somme, the West African shaman and medicine man, He uses a West African metaphor. He said, everybody who's born into a human incarnation comes with a certain cargo. I like this image. And your task is to deliver your cargo. (laughs) And your cargo is really your gift. And when you understand this, um, then it's not so much about being generous as just offering yourself to the world and receiving as well. Because I was spending time with Ramdas recently in Hawaii, you know, and he talked about this. He said, you know, I went around the world teaching for a long time and then we started the Seva Foundation which just celebrated 20 some years of doing um, eye surgeries to restore sight to people who were blind in Nepal and India and Africa and various places. They just celebrated their four millionth eye surgery, four million people who are blind who can now see. He said, and that was just a wonderful thing to do with my life. But then I had this major stroke, and now I'm in a wheelchair and I can't move one arm, and I have trouble speaking some aphasia. He said, and people have to pick me up and move me and wipe my bottom. He said, and I'll tell you, going around the world taking care of everybody and giving to all these people, that was easy compared to letting people take care of you. So there's also something about letting yourself being taken care of. And in that book of Mother Teresa's, she writes about a beggar who came up to her and said, Mother, I want to give you, and took these paisa, you know, small coins out of the hem of his or her, you know, shawl, and said, I want to give you this gift. And she said, I don't know whether I should take the gift or not. In my mind, she said, I, I thought, if I take this man's or this woman's money, um, that might be their food money for the next two days. Should I take it? And I stood there and then I said, Who am I to judge? It's so beautifully offered. She said, and I said, yes, thank you. And they said, give this to others who are hungry. She said, and when I saw the brightness in that person's eyes, that they too were able to offer something and give something, she said it was probably the, the best gift that I could ever receive to allow this to happen and the best gift that they could do. We've got all the politics now telling us to be terrified. I sure hope you're not believing that rubbish. I mean, uh, the great political commentator of a hundred years ago, H.L. Mencken said the whole aim of politics is to Uh, scare and terrify the population, creating all kinds of imaginary hobgoblins that then um, get people to vote out of fear for those who are looking for power. Um, And you know that's how it works, really. The likelihood that you will die in a terrorist attack in America, even if there there will be another one, I mean, that's going to happen at some point, is probably about the same as being eaten by a shark, basically. Um, it's true, just numerically and statistically, um, and it's one one-thousandth of, or one ten-thousandth or something like that, of the danger of just going out on the highways in Christmas season with all those other drivers. You know, if you want to be terrified, um, <laughs> don't drive on New Year's Eve, right? Um How are we going to respond to this? Are we going to let the terrorists set the agenda for our hearts? Are we going to let the terror inside? Or are we as individuals and are we as a society going to say, our response to this is not just going to be some military response, um, but we're going to take 10% of our military budget, let's say, you know, 50 or 100 billion dollars a year, And in the next five years, join with other countries and feed every hungry child on earth, you know, and give clean water to every village on earth. Um, then we would be, what's the line from Langston Hughes? He writes, let America be America again, the America she never was. Um, then we would be something... That exists in some way in the imagination of the world or that used to and still does somewhere that there's something that there's some greatness In the spirit of this country or the spirit of what it was born out of And so instead of making others them and them and them um, We become an island of uh, Generosity we become the seed planters of the world we become a force of connection and love. Um, it's really the only force that meets the force of terror and violence and that can match it is the force of love. Nothing else is close. Hmm. Another Chris- Christmas story for you. Again, Christmas morning, 1952. So these are old stories, but they're they're relatively recent in the National Story Project. A light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the church eager to get home and play with the presents Sand had left for us and our baby sister Sharon. Across the street from the church was a Pan Am gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. I wondered why they were there, but then forgot it. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presents. We had to go off to grandparents' house for Christmas dinner. And as we drove through the hi- down the highway through town, I noticed the family was still there standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly now. The closer he got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly he U-turned and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am station standing in the rain, waiting for the bus. They've got children. It's Christmas. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was very tall and had to stoop slightly to peer into the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the children, and they stared back at us. Waiting on the bus, my father asked. man said they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing there. Windbourne's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there and some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car, and I'll run you up there. The man thought about it for a moment, beckoned to his family, and they climbed in the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. Once they settled in, my father looked back over his shoulders and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave his answer. Well, I didn't think so, said my father, winking at my mother. Because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding you all and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go to get them there before I take you to the bus stop. All at once, the three children's face lit up and they began to bounce around in the back seat, laughing and chattering. When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door straight to the toys that were spread out under the tree. One of the girls spied Jules' doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball, and the other little girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. That was the Christmas, when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed that the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join our grandparents' Christmas dinner, but they refused. Back in the car on the way to Winburn, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. So my father reached in his pocket and pulled out $5, which is what he had left till next payday, and pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted, It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and these children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before. I know what it's like when you can't feed your family. We left them there at the bus stop in Winborn, As we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new doll. So how do we respond to this world? You sit, and you sweep the garden. And you have the capacity as a human being, incarnated in this life, with the measure of suffering you have, and with the beauty that you have in your life, to respond in all kinds of extraordinary ways. So I'd like us to do a little practice now, um, but it's not uh, a solo practice. Um, And it's about a five or so minute practice. And what I want you to do is scoot yourself around so that you can look at somebody sitting near you. It has to be done in pairs. You don't have to know the person maybe even better if you don't, but stay quiet about it, please. And it's a little bit daunting. It needs. Okay, shh. It's a little bit daunting, so it needs your courage, but I'm looking out here and saying, ah, oh, these people have sufficient courage to do this. Plus, which we're in California, what else do you do here, right? All right, so quiet now and face another person. And first, just take a few deep breaths and quiet yourself. Anybody not have a person to be as a partner, raise your hand and stand up and look for, stand up, put your hand up. Um, So only one, anybody else? There's a, okay, there's somebody here, there's somebody in the back. You count, you join another couple then. We'll do a couple of threes, I think this will work. All right, so take a few deep breaths and just look at this person kindly and if you feel the urge to laugh or look away, you can note the shyness or the embarrassment with real patience and, and gentleness and come back when you can to see the, your partner's eyes. And as you look behind these eyes, you see a beautiful spirit Consciousness that was born into this being, the child of the spirit. Amazing. And when you look deeply, you can see this person is just like me, incarnated in a human body, going through the mysterious, mysterious journey of life. And this person was once a little child, a little vulnerable child, just like me. And this person has had happy times in their life, just like me. And this person has loved someone just like me. And this person is creative, dynamic, just like me. And this person has had their heart broken, just like me. And this person has their measure of sorrows, like all human beings, just like me. This person has been hurt and confused and disappointed in life. Just like me. This person has done some things they regret. Just like me. (coughs) And this person has lived beautiful moments just like me. And this person wishes to be safe and well and loved, just like me. Behind these eyes when you look deeply, is the child of the Spirit, the timeless consciousness, just like me. I wish you strength and support and well being in your life because I know you want to be well and happy just like me. And feel the blessing of seeing another being deeply, celebrating the mystery of another human life and being seen. I celebrate the mystery of your human incarnation, of your human life. And I know you want to be well and happy, just like me. You can thank your partner in just any simple way. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> If only we could see each other that way, says Thomas Merton. If only we could see the secret beauty behind the eyes of those around us. The world would be transformed. So I I would like us, I'd like us to end. I know you really are dying to continue talking to that person because they're... (laughs) You've fallen in love with them or they're your new best friend or whatever. All that's cool. And you can in about 10 minutes when we end. You can spend the rest of your life together if you like. But let's just hang for a tiny bit longer. So I'd like us to end with a little bit of a ritual. You know, on the last Monday that I've taught before... The Christmas New Year's holiday in some previous years we've done these really beautiful slideshows But they don't work terribly well in this room because it's the screen isn't big enough So we'll we'll do them when we have the new hall open next year um, But we've also done blessing chords, which we are going to do in a moment um, Before we do them and as part of this ritual and it's all optional you're welcome to do them or not as you like um, there's, a, there's a prior step, and that is to set uh, an intention with the turning of the seasons and the, the darkest day coming this next week, and then the return of the light, to reflect in your own heart and mind what intentions, what seeds you would like to plant in this world over this next time and in in the time ahead it's really setting the compass of the heart in the direction of your life and of course there are you know in Buddhist tradition there are all these vows sentient beings are numberless I vow to save them all That's a kind of problematic one since a lot of the sentient beings you live with don't actually want to be saved by you so you have a of little trouble with that one but um the Dalai Lama wakes up with that Shanti Shantideva's beautiful vow every morning. May I be a, a bridge, a raft, uh, a boat for those who need to cross the stream. May I be food for the hungry. May I be medicine for those who are sick. May I be a lamp or a light in the darkness to illuminate the path. May I be a resting place for the weary. Um, May I bring blessing and benefit as long as earth and sky and galaxies exist until all beings are awakened together. Some little vow like that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Or or Diane Ackerman, my friend poet, and I read this often because I find it so inspiring. Her version is, um, In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, And the wayfaring moon, in the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a healer of misery, a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. And so I would invite you to close your eyes now for just a minute And if you were to make your own vow or your own heart's intention, as you quiet the mind and listen to the heart, to sit and sweep the garden, what would it be? And if we had a little more time tonight, I would ask you to take the time now to write it down and actually to tell it to someone because to speak it out loud somehow um, anchors it in the heart. Um, But we're going to do something different with it this evening, um, which is to make uh, what are called blessing or protection cords. Um, And this will be part of the ritual. So I'd like a, half dozen or eight people to come up and help me um, and take a bunch of the cords and then scatter them in clumps around the room um, and then people will get a clump uh, and then they'll pass it on to other people who are near them. Let me take one for here for a model. Um, okay, and that. So go in the back and around and just give a clump to people and then they'll, they'll pass it further to everybody around them. And while they're getting passed out, these were resting in the arms or the robes of Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and then the Buddha. Yeah, there's. I think there's plenty out there, but you can take a few more. Yeah, I think we're good. Um, while they're being passed around, let me talk about this. In the Buddhist tradition, um, Spread all across Asia from Afghanistan through India and China into Japan. Um, the cord, does anybody know who doesn't have now? Raise your hands. I think we're good. Oh, some in the back that direction. So some clumps going, go, go back that way. Um, across Asia, the thread or the cord, um, is used as a symbol for the sacred thread that connects all life. So if you meet a Brahmin priest in India, they will wear a white thread around their body for the whole of their adult life, symbolizing that everything that they do um, is woven with the thread of the sacred or sees the sacred in everything that they touch. Um, anybody still not have? Yeah, there's plenty of them. Here. Here. And if you're desperate, you can take two or bring one to someone back to someone else. It's fine. Um, The reason that we're using this color uh, is, as I said, when we did that lovely baby blessing that you sang so happily to Amara, um, is that it's considered one robe from the thread of a monk or a nun. You can just put them down, then it's fine. Thank you. Put them down wherever you are. It's good. We'll get them later. So basically, you're wearing your robe. I have this one from the Dalai Lama that's made of some kind of unbreakable material. I've had it, I've literally had it on for about eight years now. And I don't know, you know, at first I thought it was silk, but now I think it's actually some chemical composition that (laughs) doesn't. But anyway, basically, the idea is that you wear one thread from the robe of a monk or a nun, which symbolizes that when you go into the marketplace, you're carrying your robes from the temple. you're basically a monk or a nun in drag, basically, <laughs> you know, and you remember that that this is your true home. Um, but to make these blessing cords or protection cords work well, we have to tie three knots into into them. Um, and I did this blessing cord ceremony. 40 years ago, together with the Lama Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, and somebody raised their hand and said to him, what exactly do these protect you from? And he said, why yourself, of course, which is (laughs) the main protection that human beings need. So, um, here's how you make this blessing or protection cord. You hold it up in your two hands, And the first knot is considered the knot of refuge. And for those who are of the Buddhist persuasion, it's refuge in Buddha, to see the Buddha in every being that you meet, including yourself. The refuge in the Dharma, to follow the way of truthfulness, uh, to follow the path that brings well-being and liberation to your heart and to all that you touch. And the third, Uh, is the refuge in Sangha, which is to understand that you can't awaken alone, that we support one another, that we're interconnected and that whatever moments of love or awakening or compassion that grow in you, touch everyone you meet and all the ones they meet and are interconnected like waves that go out across the galaxy, that we're all in this together and we're awakening together. And if you're not of the Buddhist persuasion, which is equally fine, much rather you be a Buddha than a Buddhist, um, you can reflect on whatever it is that you do hold to be sacred or holy as your refuge, as your deep reminder. And holding this cord then tie, when you're ready, one knot in the cord that is your commitment to remember this the sacred, or the holy, or to see the Buddha in every being that you meet. The second knot is the knot of compassion, and it begins with the the compassion of non-harming, that I undertake reverence for life, I undertake to care with the things of this world not to take things that don't belong but to actually be a steward for things. I undertake to care with my words to speak that which is true and beneficial and useful, the power of speech. I undertake uh, the care to not harm through the misuse of sexuality or intoxicants um, but rather to use the sacredness of sexuality or the capacity of the, the mind to awaken to not dilute that or deluded in any way Um, to undertake the basic principle of non harming is the ground of compassion that I undertake not to cause harm to myself and not to cause harm to others but to live a life of non harming and compassion and you can reflect on your own version and intention in that way And undertaking a life of not harming yourself and others, tie the second knot into the cord. And then the third knot is how you will use that intention that you just reflected on. setting the compass of your heart, the direction. um, As you hold your cord for the third time, remember what you reflected upon. And it could be as simple as, I vow to be kind. It doesn't have to be complicated. And reflecting on what that intention is and what it means to you. Tie the third knot in the cord which is your reminder and commitment to live with this as the direction of your heart. And now your blessing cord is fully activated. (laughs) And here's your choice. You can wear it around your neck if you wish, and don't tie it on yet, but if you want that, hang it around your neck and let the two ends hang down. You can wear it around your wrist, wrap it three times, and let the two ends hang down. Or if you like, you can just put it in your pocket, you know, if you don't want to wear it. Or you could wear it for a little while and take it off. Um, And once you've chosen where you would like it, around your wrist or around your neck, Now, I would ask that you turn to someone next to you, maybe the person whose eyes you looked in or someone else, and in a silent way, tie it on, not too tight and not too loose. Remember Goldilocks here. Um, Tie it on uh, so that um, you can tie it silently and also offer them your silent blessings. And they'll tie yours on. And find someone if you're, if you don't have anybody, join, make a trio. This is great. It looks like boy scouts and girl scouts out there it's quite charming And now, having tied these cords on, I'd like us to end the evening with a very simple chant. And the chant is this. In in Sanskrit, in, in India, when you meet a person, um, you put your hands together and the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. And the root of the word namaste is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to and I'd like us to chant namo nine times and then go out into this glorious, beautiful, dark evening. But there's one little tiny more thing to say before we go. There will be people as you go out the door holding baskets for donations. The donations that are put in the basket tonight will all go to the B Street soup kitchen in San Rafael to feed people who are living on the streets in our community people who are homeless or people who are hungry. Um, and with the rains coming, it's really important to be able to feed people. So I urge you to reach into your store of gifts that you have to offer and put something decent into the basket. Um, and think that as you do, you're really placing something, you're loving people and you're feeding them. So... Alright, so here's our chant together as a way to end the evening, and I thank you for your for your being here Namo nine times and Think of it as a blessing that you offer to yourself to others and to the to the, everyone in this room and out across the world Namo, Mo. Allah Turnings of the seasons bring new light, bring great love and wisdom and understanding into your life to all you touch and across this beautiful blue green globe. Thank you. Good night.